Welcome to Raising It, a podcast series by Noble Ambition that shares the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropy campaigns from the leaders who delivered them. During the past decade in Australia, we've seen more record-breaking multi-million dollar gifts announced than ever before. These gifts have transformed the charitable sector for the benefit of communities everywhere. But while we celebrate the philanthropists associated with these gifts, the stories of how these gifts came into being often remain untold. Raising It takes you behind the scenes to hear directly from the individuals who made these campaigns happen. We'll meet amazing leaders committed to achieving their noble ambitions through philanthropy, in education, health, marriage equality, climate change and more, and hear how they galvanize boards, teams and donors into making the impossible possible. The host of this series is me, Melissa Smith, founder and CEO of Noble Ambition, with almost 20 years experience in philanthropy and fundraising, and Australia's only global fundraiser of the year. I hope that by sharing these stories of inspiring leadership, we can encourage others to achieve their own noble ambitions. This week's episode shares the story of the incredible leadership that helped transform a small family foundation into one which raises tens of millions annually for public and private healthcare and currently has over 100 million in funds under management. The St. Vincent's Curran Foundation is the principal fundraising organisation for St. Vincent's Hospital Sydney and its facilities throughout New South Wales. And since its inception has supported St. Vincent's by raising vital funds so the hospitals can foster excellence and innovation in patient care, clinical education and medical research. It is my pleasure to welcome Charles Curran, AC, Chair, St. Vincent's Curran Foundation Trustees, and Shanthony Naidu, CEO, St. Vincent's Curran Foundation, to share their story. So Charles, Shanthony, thank you so much for joining us on Raising It podcast series. Delighted to be with you. Thanks, Melissa. So Charles, if I may start with you, philanthropy has always been an important part of your family, of your world to date. Can you tell us, as a child, recollections of the importance of philanthropy growing up? Thank you, Melissa. Yes, my earliest exposure to the importance of philanthropy was through my parents' generous support of many charitable and community organisations. Then in 1984, when I was chairman of the St. Vincent's, we were unable to fund the commencement of our heart transplant program as we had no discretionary funding. And the program was only commenced with the benefit of a large donation from a grateful patient of Dr. Victor Chang, AC. And I saw firsthand the transformational impact this gift made to enable the commencement of the program, as sadly, people needing transplants were passing away. So what did you decide to do then? Well, as a consequence of our having no discretionary funds, a decision was taken by my parents and involving my sisters Annette Burgess and Louise Byrne to establish the current foundation with an initial endowed gift of $500,000, which in today's terms would be about $1.6 million. We chose to set up the foundation as an endowment with an invitation to others to contribute. And I said to Sister Mari Herod, there was no certainty that others would contribute and no certainty that the initiative would succeed. But the Sisters of Charity gave their support and said we should proceed. So that together we took a, a risk on this. You did. We didn't know. And then with the generous contributions of others over the years since 1984, the endowment fund has grown to a value of close to $36 million, and we are now aiming to get this to a total of $40 million in celebration of the Foundation's 40th anniversary in 2024. So that was a significant risk that was taken in 1984, motivated by incredibly altruistic desires. But the success of that fund is not just individuals themselves who've contributed, but you actively engaged and encouraged others to contribute to this fund. Tell me, how did you step into this role, not only as a philanthropist through your family, but also as an incredibly successful fundraiser? Well, thank you for a slightly overgenerous statement, but <laughs> prior to setting up the Curran Foundation, I'd been on the board of the Royal Institute for Deaf and Blind Children, now called NextSense, Australia's second oldest charity, by the way, for over 20 years. And we board members 
were regularly approaching supporters, seeking contributions to help us expand our work. So that was one set of exposure I had. I was also, like many people, I'm sure, involved with school fundraising. And one of the schools which my daughters then attended had spoken to a consultant about assisting with a fundraising appeal. And following a meeting where the consultant told us that we would never raise more than 200000 to 250000 as the parents were happy to give to a boys' school but not to a girls' school, uh, we did not retain them. No, good uh, idea. And we just said we'd do it ourselves. <laughs> so what did you end up doing to prove this consultant okay. wrong? <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> okay, we established a committee which I had the honour of sharing and we set a target of $500,000, mm-hmm. something like $2 million in today's terms. And there were sleepless nights when we were struggling to have reached only $150,000 midway through the campaign. So literally there were some sleepless nights mm-hmm. for me anyway. But with a great team of very engaged parents, we redoubled our efforts and we asked our, our parents, parent body at various meetings and so on, which of you would be prepared to sit at your breakfast table and say that we'll give more support to the boys' schools than to the girls' schools? And, of course, that's a compelling, unanswerable question. Exactly. In the result, these generous supporters contributed $519,000. We exceeded our target. And that was a new Australasian record for philanthropic support. That would have been in the early 80s. So you're already building this experience of, of building campaigns, proving people wrong that it is possible to be very ambitious. I'm curious to know, then for coming to a hospital, fundraising for a hospital, both private and the public medical system is complex and much broader community than a school. How did you set about raising similar funds with even greater ambitions? Once again, it, it, it's a question of uh, engaging with other people to share the cause and to become involved. We set up the, the current foundation, as it was then called, and my parents provided the founding gift of 500000 And the foundation was set up as a public ancillary fund with an endowment, and others could contribute to that. And that would then create annual income and provide the discretionary funding that we didn't have at the time when we wanted to start our heart transplant program. It was important to me that the foundation have an existence beyond my lifetime because I was sort of significantly involved in that initiative. And we set up a board of trustees, which I chaired, and also a management committee, as it was then known, later named as a a board of management. But the fact of the matter is, I've always enjoyed getting involved with other people. So naturally, I gravitated to connecting to others to bring them to tell them about what we were doing and connecting them to the cause. And if I could just say, Melissa, I have a very simple approach to fundraising which is not having the expectation that people will contribute, but telling people about the work of St Vincent's and particular projects and giving them the opportunity to be involved. I think that's wonderful framing, not expecting people to contribute. You and I spoke about this on a previous occasion and you said you were giving people the opportunity to be part of something very special. Can you say a little bit more about that? I believe people are naturally generous. And wanting to do good, the amount of good they can do depends upon their circumstance in life. And sometimes the smaller contributions can be more sacrificial, if you like. And we we approach people at, at all. By reason of my background, I was generally approaching sort of senior business people because that's the, the world in which I've lived for a long time. And the number of supporters certainly did increase significantly to the point that in 2010, Paul Robertson, AO, Chair of St Vincent's Health Australia, asked you if you would be interested in enabling the current foundation to take responsibility for generating fundraising for all hospitals of St Vincent's across New South Wales. What your account is correct. The foundation had been able to raise uh, significant funds, and that was a success that Paul recognised. And we've been able to do this largely by developing personal relationships with the, with the donors. The substantial success, and just to put it in context, few other hospitals at that stage were raising quite that level of funds. 
and quite through this approach through major gifts and relationships. Yeah, I think that is right. One thing that we did when we had these special projects was we encouraged the generous donors to allow us to acknowledge them. We've got the names of many friends and prominent citizens who've been very generous to us, whose names are recorded at various places around the hospital, as they should be. And the reason I said we should do that, encourage them to do it, I said that will in turn encourage others to contribute. Yes. Some of them were a bit reluctant because they were you know, naturally reticent. And I said, no, would you please let us do it? And also I said for future generations, they'll be able to come and say that was granddad who, or my grandparents who did that or whatever. On a personal level, I just acknowledge my wife, Eva, who's been with me all the way. And she attended countless foundation events and brought a sparkle to them and developed close relationships with very many people who support the work of the foundation. So when we made a contribution of our family to the private hospital appeal, where the foundation, with very generous supporters, uh, was able to provide $43.6 million for that project. I suggested that our family contribution be used to recognise Eva, and hence we have the Eva Curran Rehabilitation Centre. That must be very special for all your family. Yes, it certainly is. So, coming back to your question, Paul said, will you take on the fundraising, will your foundation take on the wider fundraising role? Now, at that stage, there was a fundraising office at the hospital which was relatively small. And I said, look, conceptually, as trustees agreed that conceptually it was a good idea. So we said, let's, together with the St. Vincent's Health Australia that Paul was the chairman of, I said, let's get a, a, a consultant in to look at some of the structuring issues and how we might go about this. We had a generous pro bono and very skillful contribution made by PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC. That led to the Foundation changing its name to the St. Vincent's Current Foundation. Also, we absorbed, as I said, the smaller fundraising office. Also, under that restructure, the management committee became the board of management, mm-hmm. really reflecting what its role had yeah. been. A wonderful chair, as you know, Richard Haddock, AO, uh, a lawyer, experienced banker. And then we, following a recruitment process, Shanthony Nadu became our new CEO working with Richard and the board, they together have increased the professionalism and the effectiveness of both the trustee company for the foundation and also the foundation itself. Absolutely. It became transformative. So if this is a wonderful time to now bring in Shanthony. In 2013, you joined as CEO of the St. Vincent's Curran Foundation. Coming from the National Gallery of Australia and before that, Tarong Zoo, before that, Sydney Opera House. How did that fundraising within the cultural sector and in conservation, how did that prepare you for fundraising across public and private hospitals? Yeah, well, it probably didn't. (laughs) It probably didn't prepare me as uh, much as I would have thought. It was such a different experience to move from, you know, cultural institutions and the gallery on, on many fronts. I think, in fact, my experience at the National Gallery, which was much broader than philanthropy and at the Opera House, the marketing, IT, commercial operations, membership, the business skills that I brought, as well as the philanthropy knowledge, was what really came to the fore in looking at what the challenge that we had to address in terms of bringing together quite disparate groups, all united by the same purpose of supporting St. Vincent's hospitals, but working very separately. So the the business and management experience from the other institutions was just as important as the fundraising experience. The thing about St. Vincent's, which Charles alluded to, is that the model of fundraising that was being used was predominantly major gifts and very much relationship-based, and that was a big area of commonality with Mm. the gallery and the zoo in particular. And the other thing that was common was uh, across all these institutions was the people that were involved. So with many of our leadership of philanthropy at St Vincent's, 
I had already had relationships with them in these previous institutions. So, for example, Mrs. Ros Packer AC, who's been the patron of the private hospital at St. Vincent's for more than 40 years, I had also worked with her at the National Gallery where she was on the council. Similarly with Charles, who had been the chairman of the National Gallery Foundation as well. So having those established relationships in those early days and then establishing a very strong relationship with the board, with um, the chairman, Richard Haddock, and the CEOs of the hospitals was really important in the development of designing the approach that we needed to take to bring all the fundraising together. So it's an interesting challenge because you're taking what was ostensibly a separate foundation, but fundraising for St. Vincent's, embedding it within the hospital as a whole and fundraising across the private hospital, the public hospital, engaging the clinical staff, engaging the donors. What were some of your initial priorities? How did you create a culture of philanthropy across such a complex organisation? Look, we have to say that the tradition of philanthropy at St. Vincent's was, is embedded in the fabric of the organisation because the Sisters of Charity, that was how they built the hospitals, how they established the services, the research facilities like the Garvin. It was only through engaging community support. So the tradition of philanthropy did not commence in 2013 and that's something that we always remember in our team. Much of what we had to do was actually look at how the sisters had achieved what they had done. And that was primarily through that very relationship based approach. So looking at what was there that was working well was the first step. And also acknowledging that culture of philanthropy had been there and could be used to reinforce this new approach that we were taking. What we were trying to do was not new to St. Vincent's, but bringing together uh, all the different aspects of that culture into a more cohesive whole. And so in doing so, yes, I realised early and having worked with the zookeepers and the conservationists and art curators of the gallery, that the clinicians, the doctors and nurses would be crucial, as was the leadership of the various hospitals, to developing the right structure and approach. Having the two CEOs, the CEO of the private hospital and the CEO of the public on the board of the foundation, which had been set up through the PwC review, was really critical at that stage because essentially we had to not only bring together all the donors into a one database because they were all on separate relationships with separate institutions almost, but then there was also a whole lot of overlap where we had some of our more long-term donors that were supporting all the different groups, the Curran Foundation, the Friends of the Private Hospital, and, you know, probably making a donation to Sacred Heart on the side as well. Acknowledging that we had a lot of donors that were giving to more than one entity was important as well. So looking at the donors and the profile of their relationship and how long some of them had been involved. I mean, some of our donors to the foundation have been involved with supporting the foundation since 1984. And they knew more about philanthropy at St. Vincent's than some of the newcomers like me. And that was important to acknowledge. So we spoke to a lot of people, donors, and also the doctors and nurses and hospital leadership in developing uh, the model working with the board to develop the first business plans. And we worked in parallel. On the one hand, we were building the fundraising structure and building on the success, but also introducing a few new initiatives and fixing up the back end. But also on the other side, we had to identify what were the priorities for fundraising. And, you know, right from the beginning uh, at Our board was always very clear that the hospitals set the priorities for our fundraising and that is at the core of how we decide what is needed and how much we need to raise to deliver the the goals of the hospitals. Yeah, it was a fascinating process and such a privilege to be able to be involved with bringing something like this together. I think that's... A very interesting and respectful approach just because the structure was new doesn't mean there was a a deep culture of philanthropy from the sisters themselves that is part of the fabric of the hospitals. I think the other part of that is you've got the core governance framework supporting 
the ongoing ambitions and systems you're laying in with your two CEOs of both hospitals, being on that board of management committee is key. But prior to this, the fundraising had been, as Charles spoke, about key projects and really successful in achieving some of those key projects. But the first campaign, significant campaign that you undertook, was launched in 2015. It was for St. Vincent's Private Hospital. Ultimately, you raised $43.7 million for the construction and redevelopment. But how did you get underway with this quite ambitious target? So the initial target was $25 million. There had been other capital campaigns at St. Vincent's as well. And even, you know, going back to the ladies committee of the private hospital with Sister Bernice, who is, you know, a legend in fundraising at St. Vincent's, this famous story that if Kerry Packer saw Sister Bernice entering his office, he would bring out the checkbook. Um, <laughs> so that's quite inspirational as a fundraiser that you have that benchmark set. So once again, it wasn't new, but the quantum of what we were trying to achieve was large and it was unknown in the context of the new fundraising structure. So once again, making sure that we engaged people who had been involved with the private hospital fundraising before was quite critical. And, you know, we are blessed to have Ros Packer as a patron, the long-standing patron of the private hospital who came on board as a patron for the capital campaign. Alongside the other members of the capital campaign committee, it was chaired by John Morshell. These people had been involved previously with um, the campus and were passionate about the purpose of the campaign. And ultimately, that was the key driver. A key issue as in many fundraising appeals, is having a key gift. We had engaged for probably 18 months or more with one particular gentleman who had expressed interest in providing significant support. As the plans were developed and we showed him what they were and the man was Len Ainsworth, Mm -hmm. he contributed $5 million. Very generous donation. Now, that enabled us then to go to a number of other people who had been traditional supporters of ours and who we knew had that sort of capacity to say, look, we've had a gift of $5 million. Is there some way you might like to be involved in this project? And a number of them, of course, came back with, well, I'll put $5 million in too. So that, that was important too. Of course, there were many other gifts, smaller gifts, quite a number of them in the multi-millions, not quite five million, and and other gifts as well, all of which counted and came up to that huge figure. The huge figure indeed, because I think while there is a richness of philanthropy and fundraising in the hospital, the quantum, as you said, Shantani, is different, but also this very structured approach and strategic approach in, in securing those sort of cornerstone gifts early, such as with Len Ainsworth. Can I clarify, Charles, as you said before, in terms of naming the rehabilitation centre and gym in the private hospital after Ava, you giving that gift on behalf of your family was a very important part of then being able to ask? I think it helped. People knew that I was doing my bit and our family was doing their bit. Really, it was the Len Ainsworth gift preceded that. Did it? So that, okay. was the, that was the one that really got us going and it was crucially important. And of course, I remain enormously grateful to Len for that. At the time, this would have been a very, very significant gift within the Australian philanthropic environment, certainly for hospitals. How long did it take that actual discussion before the ask was finalised? Well, he was sort of kept fully engaged in our discussions with architects and what the nature of the development was going to be. So that went well over 12 months. And we, it was against the background of him saying, yes, he wanted to support what we were doing. So we engaged him as we, uh, he was entitled to be engaged in what our planning was, what our aspirations were. And then when, when that had become finalized and we said, okay, we now want to go out and, and approach people for gifts that, that he said, right, well, I'll put five, the first five million in. That's wonderful. And I guess to be clear, while your gift for the hospital came about after that, Len had a level of confidence that you were very much invested in this project. You'd been a considerable supporter of the hospital to date. And I just wanted to understand from your perspective, how important is it to personally give 
to an organisation before you ask others to do so? I think that's enormously important, not just in terms of necessarily giving the full detail of what you might have given, Mm. but being able to say, well, look, we, we we as a family have contributed. And being prepared to answer the question, if if asked, well, how much are you putting in? But not only that, I think that when a person themselves has given contribution, they've got a lot more confidence in going and talking to others. If they're still wrestling in their own mind with saying, will I give 100,000 or will I give 500,000 or whatever figure, I think think it makes it more difficult for them then to be approaching others with confidence. So I think I think the point you make is is absolutely correct, Melissa. I think it's very important for people to get their own gift established before they go talking to others. Indeed. So the original target of this private hospital campaign was twenty five million, and then you ended up raising forty three point seven million. That's a considerable jump. So, Anthony, tell me a little bit about what you learnt during that process of significantly increasing the original target. Yeah, it was an interesting process. One of the things was that the committee was so focused and so disciplined, and I think that's actually quite an important point because it was Charles as well as the committee that made their early contributions and were actively involved in asking and introducing so that that didn't rest solely on the team. That meant that the $25 million target was actually secured quite quickly. In fact, I think the Capital Committee only met six times in the space of about a year to achieve that. Um, That's how disciplined they were. And we had also engaged an internal resource, a very experienced fundraiser, Carol Renouf, who came on board to support that process. So because we were able to secure the $25 million earlier than we had expected, but at the same time, the complexity of the actual project, literally dropping in a building, was turning out to cost quite a lot more than had initially been estimated. So the complexities of the construction project combined with also the identification that there was the opportunity to make sure that this beautiful new facility would be equipped with the latest technology, robotics, and the operating theatre fit-outs to make sure that the doctors themselves had the best equipment and technology. We then extended the campaign without equipping your hospital of the future. We went from building to equipping, which was helped clarify for our donors and supporters what we were fundraising for now beyond our initial commitment. And that really also allowed us to engage a lot more people. So we'd started to realise, and it's going back to this point of giving people the opportunity to engage and be involved, that we didn't want to just restrict this to people who were able to afford naming rights, that we needed to engage other donors at smaller levels was just as important, particularly in setting up our relationship with new audiences and new donors into the future. And so that second phase of the campaign allowed us to do programs like our Friends for Life program where people could give at a $10,000 level or donate for specific pieces of equipment. And so that really helped us extend the life of the campaign and then achieve the $43.6 million. Did you think it was going to be this successful when you began the campaign? Look, it was so early in my time at the foundation, I suppose my primary concern was actually achieving the $25 million. Um, So I wasn't really thinking beyond that. But as time went on and, and I saw the generosity of spirit and the closeness of the relationships that people have with St. Vincent's, I realised that the potential to do a lot more to support the private hospital was there. I think so. I think it's an interesting demonstration of the appetite for philanthropic investment within your community and the potential for significant ambition. We first sort of formally and professionally met on a piece of work, I think it was in 2018. We were looking at significant success of St. Vincent's to date, but setting up for the future. And it was interesting. We had that discussion of how you take a lot of the major gift fundraising approaches that the higher education sector is using and embedding them in here. And I think one of those challenges was there was an appetite to support the public hospital also, but there are comes with challenges 
to operate within the public hospital in terms of timeframes, demands. Tell me, how do you set about providing philanthropic support and ambitious support for the public hospital environment? I think it's a very important point that you've raised, Melissa. I mean, St. Vincent's is significantly known for very high-tech things. You know, the first bone marrow transplant in Australia, first heart transplant in Australia, and, and many other areas of firsts. We've always had that the very heart of the public hospital is the care for the less advantaged and homeless health and mental health have really been core. Now, a number of our donors, I'm not talking about obviously the private hospital campaign now, that was a totally separate thing, but we've had multi-million dollar donations from individuals to support those particular causes. Yeah. And we're expanding that work. The, the, the need is arising in our community. And in fact, we're in the process of, we've recently bought the Green Park Hotel. The trustees of the hospital bought that, which is on our research, corner of our research block. It's a heritage building, Queen Anne architecture, beautiful building. And we're putting in an urban health hub there, which will be looking after people who've got some mental health issues. They're lonely. They're disconnected. Some of them would have gone to our emergency department feeling a need for help. The more appropriate help it will now be provided in this urban health hub where we'll have psychologists and doctors and so forth who can look after the special needs of those people. There is a real appetite there for people, not just to support the high-tech work, but to support this other work. And that's core to what we're about. It is. It goes back to the core values you spoke about. But actually, most of the innovation, the heart-lung transplant program, the Centre of Excellence for Cellular Therapies, that work actually sits in the public yeah. system, in the public hospital. And the primary area for clinical research and the interface with our precinct partners, the Garvin Institute of Medical Research and Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute and our own St. Vincent's Centre for Applied Medical Research, that innovation sits in the public and that is one of the absolute key priorities for the fundraising for the whole precinct. And so the fact that those flagship clinical research and innovation programs sit within the public hospital for the benefit of all our patients, that really helps us to and has helped us to always maintain the fundraising outcomes for the public hospital, even when we were doing the private hospital campaign. So we've always raised more money on an annual basis for the public hospitals, which we're very proud of, particularly because we also support the mission-based mental health, homeless health, our Healing Hope and Humanity Fund that gives access to vulnerable and patients to the best care when they can't afford it. It's wonderful that, and we're very unique as a precinct, a healthcare precinct, that both the public and the private and the research institutes are all part yeah. of the St. Vincent's family. There's a nice story to illustrate aspects of this. A generous donor, a business colleague of mine, gave a million dollars recently in support of our cardiac area. Mm. And in initial discussions with uh, Professor Paul Jance, who heads up our heart transplant program, that was going to go entirely towards the training up of younger doctors in, mm -hmm. in that discipline. Paul came back to us after a few weeks and said, do you think the donor would be happy to have half the amount contributed to that and the other half contributed to providing access to our cardiac work, people who cannot otherwise afford it? Now, in terms of culture and commitment, I mean, it's extraordinary. So we were just so thrilled to think that one of our senior clinicians would do that. Of course, we went back to the donor and the donor said, that's a great idea. We'd love to do it. So we're doing that now. But that's indicative of the commitment of our senior people for the disadvantaged. It's very powerful. And it also reinforces, Shanthony, the point that you made at the very outset is that St. Vincent's current foundation is fundraising for the hospital's priorities set by the CEOs of both the public and the private hospital. And it's interesting that leads what your priorities are and how you go about them and illustrated in that beautiful story just now. The story that you just said, Charles, is a beautiful illustration of the values of St. Vincent's hospitals and also the willingness of your donors to invest significantly to impact the communities that the hospital supports. I'd like to jump to 2019 when, in fact, a very significant contribution 
was discussed and the establishment of the JWNN Cunningham Foundation. Charles, can you tell me a little bit more about how this came about? Melissa, there's a precursor to 2019. So the John and Margaret Cunningham had been generously supporting a number of our projects for several years to the tune of multi-million dollars. Then they came to us in 2019 and said they were contemplating establishing their own separate foundation in support of uh, the health field. Could they do so in conjunction with us? And to do so by way of a private ancillary fund, under that only they and members of their family could contribute to that. So the Cunningham Foundation has parallel objectives to the St. Vincent's current foundation. And the St. Vincent's Trustee Limited also now acts as trustee for the Cunningham Foundation. And the foundation staff are responsible for the accounting, administrative, grant review, investment, and other functions on behalf of the JWM Cunningham Foundation. Now, extraordinarily, and with the confidence that John and Margaret developed in their mind about the capability of the board under Richard Haddock and the management under Shanthony. They've now increased that endowment very significantly, and it's now $60 million. That's given us much more funds in terms of annual income to support a whole variety of activities across St. Vincent's Hospital. And one of the important ones is the Cunningham Fellows Program. That supports the development of the next generation of doctors and clinicians across St. Vincent's Hospitals in New South Wales. That's absolutely crucial for our future, that we be developing that future talent. So in approximately three years, their investment went from an initial $10 million to over $60 million. That's right. That's quite extraordinary. In 2013, there was $15 million in the endowment. Thanks to the establishment of the JWNN Cunningham Foundation, in addition to the St. Vincent's Curran Foundation, we now have an excess of $100 million in the endowment. And we're seeing annually, we're raising close to $38 million. It's an extraordinary achievement in a relatively short period of time, less than nine years, but something also extraordinary happens in our world, and that is the pandemic. Shanthony, tell me where you were and what was it like working at St. Vincent's at those very, very early weeks of the pandemic back in 2020? So, of course, being in the healthcare system, we obviously had a little bit of advance notice and the whole hospital system was paying a lot of attention to the news of COVID-19 overseas. And so, in some ways, we had a bit of headway, but I don't think anyone thought that it would, you know, lockdowns would happen and the impact of the pandemic would occur as quickly as it did. So, you know, in terms of responding from a fundraising point of view, it was really important for us to remember that the absolute first priority was the hospital's response to protect the health of the community. But what became obvious really early is that having the ability to support the priorities of the hospital in the COVID response quickly could be enabled through our resources and philanthropy. This is where the ability for us to, to use some of our discretionary income to support the hospitals to, in that rapid response came to the fore. So in April 2020, the board and trustees of the foundation approved an initial grant, for example, of 450000 to quickly set up the COVID virtual care clinic. Even before government funding became available for those sorts of initiatives, the foundation team was able to get our resources together to support even things like setting up the vaccination clinic at Bondi without, through our corporate partnerships for marquees. And some of it was really practical support through our networks. And then it was really engaging with our donors for other priorities, such as setting up the ADAPT long COVID study, which we were able to do really early, which is now coming to the fore through the philanthropic support for that study, which is in conjunction with the Kirby Institute. We were able to start enrolling 
COVID positive patients right from, I think, as early as May 2020, which is giving us a base of patients to look at the impact of long COVID. It's one of the largest studies of the sort in the world now because we were able to activate it so early because we had the philanthropic community to support us and also our own resources. So from the earliest days of the pandemic and that very initial response to, you know, the ongoing, working through the ongoing impact of it for more strategic long-term initiatives, philanthropy has played a very crucial role and we've been able to support the hospitals so they didn't have to worry about where the money might come from. One of my favourite stories is that we needed a vaccination van to take vaccines out to vulnerable communities and our homeless population where it was more difficult to engage with them to come in for the vaccinations. And the problem at the time became not the money to buy the van, but actually finding a van because that was a major issue was this massive shortage of vehicles and appropriate vehicles. And through our wonderful relationship with the Sutton family. We rang them and we said, look, we've, we've got the money, but we can't find a van. As luck would have it, they had an appropriate van, which they were able to secure for us, which became our now very well known around Sydney uh, vaccination van, which has gone around vaccinating thousands of people who might not have otherwise accessed the COVID vaccines. So, Philanthropy has played such an important role in a variety of different ways in this pandemic period, and you were able to mobilise it so quickly because of the deep relationships that you had built over a number of years. Can I ask you, Shanthony, how did you maintain this resilience and energy while your work environment is under such stress? The clinicians at the coalface of our hospital system was under enormous pressure and stress, as was our entire community. How did you maintain that resilience and your team to keep Mm. going? Well, we had the most resilient people that we were working alongside, the most courageous, and there was uh, the best example because if you woke up any day feeling like you had a difficult job as the CEO of the foundation, I just looked to my colleagues the CEOs of the hospitals and the directors of nursing. And that gave me a lot of perspective in in my role. And I think that was the same for our team because whilst many people were having work shutdowns or, you know, working from home, our colleagues were stepping up and responding to this urgent need for the whole community. So that flowed through to our team in terms of this was a time that we had to do absolutely everything more than ever to support our hospitals. So I think it was watching what our frontline workers, what our nurses had to go through and how they responded and managed it that was the inspiration for our team and extremely inspiring to be part of that St. Vincent's response. So, yeah, we I suppose it felt like we had no choice. Yeah. Could I also say that it was inspiring that our supporters came in and contributed multi-million dollars specifically for COVID. Yeah. That enabled us to do, you know, even more. And apart from the money, we had many, many gifts of uh, goods and services, accommodation for some of our staff at hotels, staff up in the staff of the hospital, food items in support of people who were working ridiculous hours because of the pressures of COVID. All of that was self-reinforcing, if you like. But I think also the fact that we didn't step to the side during that initial response and we were able to contribute practically to that response and support you know, essentially support the hospitals in what, however they needed. That reinforced the credibility of the foundation yeah. and our team and the role of philanthropy throughout the hospital and with frontline staff and leadership. It also gave us the opportunity to really look at what our priorities were and how we would manage that through an extended response to the pandemic, which we, you know, knew would be a lot longer than was widely being reported. And the actual ups, ebbs and flows of the clinical 
for example, elective surgery being put on hold, then we would look to work with the surgeons because we knew they had more capacity. So we worked with, with them on one of our biggest projects, which we've delivered now, which was, you know, raising almost $11 million for the total refurbishment of our operating theatres. So we really thought long and hard about, you know, well, is what are the opportunities within this? And surgeons are really difficult to connect with in normal because in operating theatres, they're operating and yet through the pandemic, we've been able to do a lot more with them. Throughout this period, our heart transplant program continued. Yeah. We do about 110 a year, one of the biggest programs in the world. Definitely one of the most successful, if not the most successful in the world. So when there were people in life-threatening circumstances needing a transplant, we were able to keep that going. It's incredibly powerful, these stories, and it's also so interesting how the pandemic has not only been enormously challenging and a dreadful circumstance, but how you've mobilised your philanthropy programs and your donors to contribute in a myriad of ways that may not have actually been possible. The legacy that COVID-19 has perhaps left is, is reinforce the important role philanthropy plays and the donor community plays in the hospital going forward. So here we are, the tail end of 2022. The pandemic still continues in its way, but your ambitions continue to grow. Tell me what is next for St. Vincent's Current Foundation? Well, firstly, I'd like to say thank you, Melissa, for the strategic work you did with us in 2018, because we've just come to the end of delivering that three-year strategic plan for the foundation. And I'm sure you'll be happy to know that despite the pandemic, we were able to, with the support of our incredibly generous donors, to achieve most of what was in there. And we've now reviewed that and developed the next three years, which Charles has come up with a wonderful theme, which is building on success. I suppose that is looking at where to from here. What we have done is we've got to where we are through incremental improvement and growth Mm. and that continued focus on building our relationships, strong relationships with our donors. And, you know, we really try to live that motto of being, you know, you're part of the St. Vincent's family and that personalised care and, and relationship building. So we want to continue to build that. It's become quite an almost bespoke model, I think, in the way our team works. But also we now need to match the ambitions, the new ambitions of our hospitals, of course. And so there are some exciting opportunities for redevelopment of Darlinghurst, uh, which would extend our fundraising capabilities and outcomes to the next level. And so, um, you know, that would ideally entail the redevelopment of our Carl Cater building, um, which is a key priority, and also the construction of a new translational research centre. So we hope that we would be able to launch some of those campaigns in the next three-year period and also to look to the opportunity for planned gifts and legacy foundations. We now know that we have the structure that we can accommodate and work with donors to do those really transformational acts of philanthropy. That's wonderful. Also, if I could just add, we're still at the dawn of genomic medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the human genome was first sequenced only very few years ago. So this opens up extraordinary opportunities for what we describe as personalised medicine, where we can actually find out at a gen- genomic level what's creating the difficulty and how can we deal with that. And that is going to be transforming. The plans ahead sound incredibly exciting. But to achieve them will continue to take great levels of energy, support from your donors and extraordinary leadership. And I'm delighted that you both could come and speak today because I think it's really important to characterize what a chair of a trustee board and the CEO of a foundation and how those two critical roles interrelate. And Chanthony, you work (laughs) incredibly hard with your team to run all the foundation, build relationships with these supporters. I remember when we first met Charles and I was speaking with people in the hospital about your role and the, the term they used was he, he's, he's just constantly walking the halls of the hospital. He's always here, 
Now, this is, of course, pre-pandemic, but you know this hospital, you know the clinicians, you know the patients, the commitment that you have made to the hospital and fundraising is extraordinary. Did you ever think it would become this successful and this impactful back in 1984 when it was first established? Melissa, one thing I say to people today on that very point is this. 40 years ago, we could not have imagined where this might grow to, starting from nothing. The challenge now is to use our imagination and think, where might we go in the next 40 years? Because the foundation, small f foundation that we're building on of the, of the hospital, which is so different to what it was 40 years ago, so, so much larger, more scientifically based, uh, it gives us extraordinary new opportunities. So whilst it was difficult 40 years ago to think what, was, what the next 40 years might have brought, today, so exciting to, say, to, to reflect on what is the next 40 years going to bring. I can't wait to see what happens next. Congratulations to you both. Thank you both for your time so much and all the very best of luck for your noble ambitions ahead. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Wonderful being with you. And thank you for the contribution you've made as acknowledged by Shanthony in helping us set that strategic plan three years ago. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Melissa. Key learnings. Fundraising growth of St. Vincent's current foundation reflects a deeply rooted culture of philanthropy within the broader hospital. St. Vincent's fundraising is rooted in a deep and historic culture of philanthropy, both at a foundation level and within the broader hospital. St. Vincent's current foundation has always recognised its history and built a fundraising strategy that pays homage to the original spirit of the hospital's founding sisters and original donors. In so doing, St. Vincent's has successfully brought along many stakeholders and built a strong and loyal donor community. The critical role of chair in fundraising. Charles Curran has been part of St. Vincent's Curran Foundation since its inception and has been its chief champion all this time. He continues to be a formidable leader by personally giving to St. Vincent's Curran Foundation, which demonstrates a commitment to philanthropy at a leadership level, and by advocating for the organisation and stewarding donors in a meaningful and deeply personal way, such as walking the halls of the hospital to visit donors and thank hospital staff. His leadership has helped steward the exponential success of the foundation. Agility of fundraising to ensure the hospital gets what it needs. The St. Vincent's Curran Foundation's support of the hospitals during the pandemic reflects an agile fundraising strategy that can respond to the needs of the hospital, from securing the vaccination van to working with clinicians that would have otherwise been busy with private hospital surgeries, to supporting staff on the front line. When philanthropy is deeply embedded in a foundation, strategy can be agile to adapt to the changing needs of the organisation it supports. Thank you for listening to Raising It. We hope this episode has demonstrated the power of philanthropy to create transformational social impact and will inspire you to realise your own noble ambitions. For more information, please go to nobleambition.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode.